In the uh, previous series that we were in, Fearless, we referred to many different chapters in uh, Matthew's Gospel, and actually today uh, we're going to continue uh, in looking at this book. We're going to be in Matthew for this coming year, walking through the Gospel, kind of chapter by chapter, text by text. This morning I'm actually going to begin and we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. And I was thinking about that. I don't know if I've ever done a message on a genealogy. So this could be a first today here. And then uh, we're going to actually hold a couple of the next passages, the birth of Christ and the visit of the Magi for uh, the Christmas season. And we'll come to those at that time. But we're going to continue on then in Matthew and walk through the different chapters that are there. And we're going to do this study of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what do the scriptures tell us about him? And I think it'll be very good for both those of us that have known him for a long time, as well as for those who may be just beginning this journey and coming into an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So uh, let's pray, and then uh, we're going to begin. Father, we thank you for your word. It was given to teach us about yourself and about your Son. It was given to show us the way of salvation, that we might understand that accurately, that we might know how to come into a relationship with you through your Son. And so, Father, I pray that as we study the Gospel of Matthew, this rich book that is a testimony of who Jesus is, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your truth, remind us of things that we have learned before but maybe have not thought about for a while, and things that need to be refreshed in our life. And Father, for those again that are just beginning the journey, I pray that this would be a rich study that would open hearts and eyes to the wonder of who Jesus is, the Son of God. Amen. Last year there was a television series that came out that was called Do You Know Who You Are? And it was sponsored by Ancestry.com, so that kind of gives you a hint of what they were looking at. But it was the uh, it told the stories of famous people who were looking back into their family tree or past and discovering things about their ancestors that they didn't know. Uh, Gail and I would watch that, and it was kind of interesting to see some of these things that they were able to uncover as they went back in their past. And uh, Gail and I have been doing some of that actually in our own family trees. Uh, We've been looking at that ancestry and different people and where they lived and what they did. And, you know, when I look at my line and I compare it with hers, my line's kind of boring. You know, it's got a lot of farmers and fishermen and pastors in it. You know, I I remember my dad telling me uh, on the farm where he grew up that my grandfather had uh, 600 sheep on that farm that they took care of by hand. And I'm thinking, you know, we have about 600 here on a Sunday morning, you know. We've been tending sheep for a long time, just different different ways maybe that we do that. But that's kind of my family tree, and it goes back a long ways with a long line of pastors that were in it. But Gail's family tree is very interesting. It's more a reflection of American history. Uh, I just love kind of poking around in it. She actually, she was a Crockett. Her dad uh, grew up in the Cumberland Gap in Virginia. And so she has these ties to Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and uh, even to George Washington. Uh, It's interesting to see that. Uh, Her family was there prior to the American Revolution. She has three uh, great, 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 great grandfathers that fought in the American Revolution. 
Uh, two of them were at Valley Forge. I just am amazed at that in the winter of 1777 to 78. Uh, two of them went from being a lieutenant to a major during that war. Uh, one was Andrew Crockett and the other was George Isaac Gibson. Uh, Major Gibson was there actually at uh, Yorktown when uh, he was with Washington as an aide and he was there at Yorktown when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington. And I go, that's just fascinating to me to study kind of American history and realize that there were people that are part of our family tree that lived it and were right there. And in her tree, you can cross the Atlantic and go back a few more generations and you'll find lords and knights and different people like that that were part of it. And I I had no idea when I married her that I was marrying into this kind of rich history. You know, she'll kid me and say, you know, sort of makes you want to treat me with a little more respect, doesn't it? So we, we kid about that. Anyway, for us, though, a family tree or studying a genealogy is just sort of fun. It's a, like a hobby, something you do as a fun kind of interest. But when we come to the genealogy of Jesus that's recorded here in Scripture, um, we learn something different, much more profound. In ancient Israel, genealogies were very important. Uh, they were public records that established someone's identity and property rights. You treated your genealogy like you would treat your deed or your abstract or some very important papers that you have that are a proof that you own your home or that you own the property or your farm or things like that. And so in Israel, those genealogies were significant. Uh, It especially was important if you were going to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. You had to prove that you were part of that family line. If you were going to be a king, you had to show that there was legitimacy in your claim to that ancestral line of the kings going back to David. And so that's why that this genealogy is here. I mean, that's Matthew's aim. He is here to show the history of Jesus Christ in his family background. Uh, Literally, this... Gospel begins by saying that this is a book of the history of Jesus. That word record, when in the NIV it says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word record is the Greek word biblos. Uh, It is a book of the generations or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that would have been very important for Jews who are reading this to understand. Matthew's Gospel is about the coming of the King. And it was written in Greek to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Uh, This, again, would have been very important for them to see this connection if they were to believe this claim. And it's interesting that in the early history of the church, Matthew's Gospel was the primary one that was quoted in the first three centuries of the church, coming out of that Jewish background. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other Gospel. He wanted to show the connection, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning the Messiah. It is very likely that's the reason that this book is placed first out of the four Gospels. 
That's why it probably comes here at the beginning. It is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then it's amazing to think that this book was written by Matthew, who was this tax collector who was kind of a, you know, rejected by society at large because of his profession. And yet his gospel was regarded so highly by the church. Marcion, one of the early heretics in the church, wanted to sever Christianity from Judaism. And he understood the importance of the genealogies, and so he tried to cut them out of the Gospels. He didn't want to show this connection. When we come to the New Testament, we find, though, that there are two genealogies in Scripture for Jesus. One is in Matthew's Gospel, the other is in Luke's Gospel, and they are different. They're different. Now, why? And people have tried to reconcile those differences. When skeptics look at it, they say, see, there are problems here. They can't be solved. Again, it's just another example of errors in the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. And a skeptic will come at that approach because of his presupposition that, that, you know, there is no God or that God can't speak to us or he can't predict the future or these guys couldn't possibly have known all that they did. And they'll reject it sort of before they even take a look at it because of their presuppositions. But if someone is open to understanding the Scriptures and to looking into what is there, you'll find that there are answers that are suggested. There are reasons to believe. The two most common answers given about the genealogical differences are that either one, both are Joseph's, and Matthew records the royal line and Luke records his actual family line. The differences are these, that in Matthew, the gospel, uh, he takes that royal line back through the line of the kings to David, and so it goes through Solomon. But Luke's line goes through Nathan, goes through other descendants that were not kings, but were descendants of David, but it just goes through his son Nathan instead. And so they try to reconcile it that way. I think the better answer, without getting too technical here at all, is that uh, Matthew records Joseph's line and Luke records Mary's line. You see, Joseph, as we know, was not the father of Jesus. There was not a genetic link here, but it would have been the legal line that would have been established as his father. And so Matthew records Joseph's line going back through the line of the kings to show that Jesus is indeed a descendant of David. And Luke records Mary's line going back through her ancestry, which also goes to David, and then on up through Abraham and from Abraham. Luke will take it back to Adam as the Son of God and making that claim that Jesus not only is the Messiah and the Son of Abraham, but He is the Son of God. And so you'll find those differences, and there are answers that can be given, and you can do more research into that, but that's not the main point of this message today. The main point of why these things were written was to show that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And both are in agreement on that. You know, but I think it's instructive in looking at these problems to uh, kind of understand how is it that we as Christians should approach things 
when we come to the Bible and there are things that we don't understand? And what should we do when we encounter difficulties? And how do we proceed on that? Well, there's a, a story that maybe illustrates a good way to deal with that. Many years ago, uh, there was a Bible teacher who was speaking in New York and in New England. And he was traveling from New York by train to New England where he was going to continue his engagements. Well, he went into the dining car on that train and he was going to enjoy a meal, but there was a man sitting at that same table who said that he was an atheist and he had some questions about the Bible. He began to kind of pepper this Bible teacher with all of his doubts and questions that he had and kind of firing him off while this man was trying to eat his meal. He's there, he's enjoying a meal of New England cod, and he's kind of eating the fish and pushing the bones aside and just kind of going through and listening quietly and patiently to this man. And at the end of it, this atheist said, well, what do you do with all those difficulties in the Bible? I mean, how do you answer that? And the man simply replied, he said, you know, I do with those difficulties just as I am doing with this fish. I eat the meat and I lay the bones aside. And there are times when we come to the Scripture and there may be questions that we have about certain things. And the truth is that we don't have maybe enough information at times to answer all the questions completely. But as we have seen time and time again, through archaeological discoveries, there have been confirmations of things that were told in the Bible that people doubted in the past. And there is far more reason to believe in the truthfulness of the authors of Scripture than many people want to give them credit for. Matthew knew what he was talking about. And he wrote as one who had seen and lived with Jesus. And he tells us these stories so that we might come to believe that he is indeed this Messiah, the son of David. He begins by addressing him as as Jesus Christ. And I just want to make a little note on that. When you use the word Christ and Jesus Christ, the word Christ is a title. It is not a last name. It's not like we have first and last names, although it's almost become that through usage. But the word Christ in Greek is the same word as the word Hebrew, I mean, as the word Messiah in Hebrew. It means anointed or chosen one. So he is talking about Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, who is this son of Abraham and son of David. The Messiah would be a descendant of David, and so David features prominently in this genealogy. He goes from Abraham through those uh, that descended from him, and he comes down to Obed, who was the father of Jesse, and to Jesse, who was the father of King David. And there in verse 6, we see it's not just simply David, it is King David who is highlighted here. The first 14 generations that are listed there go from Abraham down to David. But there are names that are missing in the list. It's not intended to be exhaustive. It just kind of gives you a a sampling, if you will, of those people that were there between the time of Abraham and David. The second set of 14 generations goes from David to the exile. It's the period of the monarchy, of the kings of Judah. And again, there are kings that are left out. For example, between Jehoram, who is called the father of Uzziah, there are three kings that are left out. Uh, They are uh, Ahaziah and Joash and Amaziah. 
that are not mentioned here. We see those in Scripture. If you were to go back to Kings and Chronicles, you'd see those names mentioned there. We're not exactly sure why they were left out. Matthew, again, is not intending to give a full list of all of them. But he shows the line and he shows these significant events. That from Abraham to David, there's a continuous line. From David through the time of the exile to Babylon, there is a continuous line. And from the time of the exile in Babylon down to the person of Jesus Christ, there are 14 generations that he again highlights. Uh, Some of those names we recognize from Scripture, but most have come from outside sources because they're during the time of silence between the Old and New Testament, that 400-year intertestamental period where we know um, little about. But Matthew records these genealogies, these ancestors for us so that we could know there has been this continuous unbroken line back to David and back to Abraham. Now, why is that so important? Well, the line is important, and especially King David, because of the promise that was given to him in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 16. In that passage of Scripture, the Lord said this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your forefathers... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. It was a unique promise that was given to David concerning his descendants. And there would be two parts to it. God was telling David that there would be an immediate heir who would come who would build a house for God. David had this desire. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He looked at his own residence, his own palace in Jerusalem, and he had this place to dwell. But the Ark of the Covenant was still in a tent. And so he wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God said no to David. He said, it's your son who will do that. And Solomon comes along, and David has made provisions, and Solomon builds the temple, a house for God. But secondly, the promise included this, something far more significant. A statement that a future heir would come who would sit on David's throne forever. His kingdom would never end. And this one who would come would be the Messiah. And Matthew is telling us in his gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. You know, at the time when Matthew wrote, there were many pretenders to the throne. Messianic fever was high. There were a lot of people who were claiming things about themselves. And so you can understand that people would have been skeptical. How do we know that Jesus is indeed the one you say he is? Well, he offers these proofs. He also tells us that that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. 
The Scripture tells us that. And Matthew records it. You can go back through the line from David back to Judah, who was the father of Perez and Zerah. In Genesis 49.10, the Scripture said concerning Judah, this father of the kings of Judah, or the kings of Israel, that the scepter would not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He's telling us that there is this one who's going to come and this right of the kings, this right to rule, would not depart from Judah until the Messiah came. That's how the Jews treated this passage, as a messianic text. Some of your Bibles may read... um, in the phrase where it says, until he comes to whom it belongs, uh, the, some of the Bible translations read, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh was a messianic reference. Now here's what's interesting about that. In the Jewish Talmud, they admit that a little more than 40 years before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the power of pronouncing capital sentences was taken away from the Jews. So somewhere in this time period, before Christ died, the power of sentencing someone to death, which was the right of the ruler, was taken away from the Jews. In the Jewish history, it may have happened as early as 7 A.D., So here in this window of time, after the birth of Christ, before the death of Christ, the power to pronounce a capital sentence and to carry out their law was taken away from the Jews. It's why they had to go to the Romans to have Jesus put to death. They could not legally do it themselves. And another interesting comment about that was this. When the members of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council, found themselves deprived of their right over life and death, a general consternation took possession of them. And they covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth. And they exclaimed, Woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. They understood what that meant. And they were left wondering and looking for the Messiah. A little later in the history, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, in those years that followed between A.D. 81 and 96, the Roman emperor Domitian unleashed another wave of persecution on both Christians and the Jews, and he ordered all descendants of David to be slain. How would he know? I mean, how would he know who were the descendants of David? It is another evidence of how records and genealogies were kept at that time so that they might know someone's family tree and ancestry. And when I hear that and I read that in history, I think, how many times has Satan tried to wipe out the line of Christ? I mean, you had the slaughter of the innocents. It was ordered by Herod when Jesus was born. You can go back in the Jewish history at the time of the Babylonian exile when the kingdom was there hanging by a thread and you would have thought all was lost. But God in His providence was preserving a line 
and keeping his promise of the Messiah. Well, secondly, Matthew makes the point that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And why is that important? Well, do you remember the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, to 3 We looked at that this summer. The promise of a land, of a people, and a blessing. And he made this statement that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I'm going to do something through which your line will come this one who will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. I mean, Abraham would hear these promises. If God had literally told him, though, how long it was going to wait, he would have been shocked. I mean, God wasn't going to do this immediately. This would be 2,000 years before this one who would come that would be the fulfillment of the promise. Paul would explain in Galatians 3.16 that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular, The Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, plural meaning many people, but and to your seed meaning one person who is the Christ. This promise would be fulfilled through Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There would be one of Abraham's descendants who would be the means of God's blessing all the people of the earth. And Matthew is saying his name is Jesus. Wow. Matthew also, although he wrote for a Jewish audience, was very inclusive in his message. Uh, He, in this genealogy, includes five women. That is unusual. You usually did not have women named in a genealogy. Three and possibly four of them were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are mentioned here. They were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, the Moabites in Deuteronomy 23.3 were banned from worship at the tabernacle to the tenth generation. And yet here you have this woman, Ruth, who was in the line of Christ. Bathsheba may have been a Hittite like her husband, Uriah. Matthew in his gospel will include stories of Gentiles coming to Jesus like the Roman centurion, this example of faith. The Canaanite woman in chapter 15, who also came asking Jesus for the crumbs that dropped from the table like a dog, and yet came in faith and was honored for her faith. You'll have the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 that is loaded with Gentile significance as God has desired to feed and include the Gentiles. And Matthew will end his gospel with the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, all ethnic groups. Matthew is Jewish, but he is not sectarian, limiting the gospel to just the Jews. His message is that, again, Jesus is the Savior for all people. That's tremendous. One of the remarkable things that stands out to me when I look at Jesus' family tree again is who is there When you look at the people that are mentioned in this line, you'll see that there are sinners and saints. There are good people and there are wicked people. There are sinners and saints in the line of Christ, but you know what? There are sinners and saints in the people of God, in His church even today. 
And when you study the history of the church and you go back all the way through the uh, Catholic Church, for example, and the popes that were there, and you see this mixture of good and bad, of, of people that were that knew the Lord and those that did not know the Lord, you find that same mixture in the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. Let me point out just a few as we have time here. When you look at the women mentioned, again, it's unusual for them to be named, but uh, many of them were involved in immorality of a gross nature. Tamar had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab was a prostitute who had come to faith at the time of Israel coming into the land of Canaan. Ruth, again, was a Moabite who became a believer Bathsheba was guilty of adultery with David, and yet she becomes the mother of Solomon. And it's remarkable, again, God's grace in including these individuals in the line and how he worked. You can look at the men that were listed there. Again, David being guilty of murder and adultery, and yet would be called a man after God's own heart because of God's grace and the work that he did in his life. Jacob was that schemer always trying to get ahead through his own selfish, self-centered means and yet God would use him and change his heart and he would be the father of nations. Solomon was given great wisdom. He didn't always follow it though, did he? He was guilty of gathering many wives and of building shrines to idols for his pagan wives. Things that are hard for us to understand. You'll have good kings who give birth to wicked kings and wicked kings who give birth to good kings in the line of Judah. You'll have outstanding kings like Jehoshaphat and Uzziah and Hezekiah. They were not perfect, but they were good men who sought the Lord in times of trouble and relied upon Him. And then you'll have wicked kings like Rehoboam and Abijah and Manasseh who were evil. And their wickedness was so great that God would remove them from the throne. What a mixture. What a mixture of people. Good or evil, they were part of God's line. For though grace does not run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. God was at work. And just like He was at work in the line of Christ, He's at work in your line. And he's at work in the church. When I think about that, I think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. He said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so here Paul's making this comment. When he looked at the church at Corinth, and he thought about who made up the church, they had people who had come out of lives of idolatry, people who had come out of sexual immorality, people who had lived their lives as petty thieves, stealing to try and get ahead, people that were greedy and took advantage of others. All sorts of sins. And he says, but that's what some of you were. 
and you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints and sinners, in the line of Christ and in the family of God. In conclusion, Matthew's point here is not that all of these people were saved that were in this line of Christ. They weren't. Only those who came and walked with God by faith. But he is making a point that God's grace is not bound by race or gender or scandal. God's grace reaches beyond Israel to the Gentiles. God's grace reaches beyond men to women. It reaches beyond the self-righteous to sinners. It's why he came. Matthew will tell us that the angel said to Mary, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. He saves. And that is good news. That's very good news. Because that means that there is a place in the family of God for people like you and me. I think that's Matthew's point here. He is not only telling us about who Jesus is in terms of his identity looking back, but he's telling us about who Jesus becomes when we turn our life to him. He is our Savior and Lord too. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior for all people. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And there are parts of it that sometimes we may skip over when we read because we don't understand all that's there. But even these genealogies are significant. It's not just a bunch of names, but it's a record of the history of Jesus Christ. And it shows how He did indeed fulfill the promises that You had made to send a Savior. One who would sit on David's throne and whose kingdom would never end. One who would be that seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And Father, we stand today and we give you thanks for what you've done. Thank you for opening our eyes to see who Jesus is and for the work of grace that you've done in our life. And help us to share that good news with others who need to know you. Help us to be the means by which others may come to know Christ as we look for opportunities to share the hope that we have. Father, may you bless your people today and may you bless us as we uh, leave this place and Continue the work that you've called each of us to. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.